Psalm 72. Give the king your justice, O God, and your righteousness to the royal son. May he judge your people with righteousness and your poor with justice. Let the mountains bear prosperity for the people and, and the hills in righteousness. May he defend the cause of the poor of the people, give deliverance to the children of the needy, and crush the oppressor. May they fear you while the sun endures, and as long as the moon throughout all generations. May he be like rain that falls on the mown grass, like showers that water the earth. In his days may the righteous flourish, and peace abound till the moon be no more. May he have dominion from sea to sea, and from the river to the ends of the earth. May desert tribes bow down before him, and his enemies lick the dust. May the kings of Tarshish of the coastlands render him tribute. May the kings of Sheba and Seba bring gifts. May all kings fall down before him, all nations serve him. For he delivers the needy when he calls, the poor and him who has no helper. He has pity on the weak and the needy, and saves the lives of the needy. From oppression and violence, he redeems their life, and precious is their blood in his sight. Long may he live. May gold of Sheba be given to him. May prayer be made for him continually, and blessings invoked for him all the the day. May there be abundance of grain in the land. On the tops of the mountains may it wave. May its fruit be like Lebanon, and may people blossom in the cities like grass of the field. May his name endure forever, his fame continue as long as the sun. May people be blessed in him, all nations call him blessed. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who alone does wondrous things. Blessed be his glorious name forever. May the whole earth be filled with his glory. Amen and amen. The prayers of David, the son of Jesse, are ended. My my name is Thomas, and um, I am going to be talking today from Psalm 72. We got to hear it uh, just now. Um, Before we jump into the psalm, uh, go ahead and, if you have a Bible, if you have any type of technology, just go ahead and turn to that and just open it up on your phone or whatever you have. It's going to be good for us to be able to just kind of lay eyes on these words as we walk through them. Um, The psalms are, um, as you guys, I think we're like in the third week, so you're kind of starting to uh, get the lay of the land, a little bit of what the psalms, I love the psalms. I love the psalms because what they do is they, uh, they, they, they kind of pull the curtain on uh, humanity. And so we've kind of, the American dream is kind of like set for us where you go to school, you do right, you don't get arrested, uh, you don't get arrested, and you pay your taxes, and you go to college, and you get a job, and then you get a family, and then you get two and a half bathrooms, and then two and a half kids. I still don't know what that means. And then um, you continue, and you, reti- you save money, you retire, and this, 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 that's the American dream. But the Psalms reveal that's not humanity at all. Humanity is not this upward climb where it's just straight and perfect and sweet until you just 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 uh, kind of uh, 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 go away in your sleep. Um, it's not that at all. It's filled with twists and turns. It's filled with what John Bunyan calls the the pit of despair, where there's all kinds of surprises on and and all kinds of twists and turns and um, and and that's life. And the Psalms reveal that, and the Psalms help us to uh, navigate that. Um, and and one of the ways it does that uh, in a very special and meaningful way is it reveals to us who God is. It gives us a, a, a clear glimpse in different seasons of our life, whether we're in despair or whether we're filled with joy or whether we're satisfied, whether we're angry or anxious or sad. Or, and in, in, in each of those moments, the Psalms kind of give us a glimpse of who God is, reveals us uh, his character and his attributes. And it puts him in, 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 in right perspective as this big, beautiful, amazing uh, creator who deserves to be worshipped. But it does something else in us. It also uh, puts in perspective who we are. And puts in perspective that we are needy, and that we are weak, and that we are creatures, and that our only uh, uh, response uh, to that reality can, can must be to worship and praise Him. And that is why the psalm psalmist can uh, uh, say, um, um, "Yeah, the, the, though I am filled with despair, I will worship You." 
And there's one point where he says in, in the, the literal term in, in our day would, uh, would be like, though it feels like a lawnmower is going up and down my back, I will worship you. Later from the, the sons of Korah, he's just surrounded with his enemies. And, he's, and he says, I, I, but yet I will still surrender to you in prayer. And so that's what the Psalms do for us. It takes regular everyday life as a human being and it allows us to be able to uh, navigate it by giving us a clear picture of who God is uh, and a clear picture of who we are. And then when those two come together, you get this uh, beautiful uh, life of, and display of worship. And I think that's what Psalm 72 will do for us today. I think Psalm 72 will reveal to us uh, through, this, through Jesus Christ, uh, 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 God as king that he is the one true king, that he is the ideal king, that he is the righteous and just king. And then it will reveal to us that we are not king, uh, that we are, uh, 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 we must submit under his authority and reign joyfully and, and bless him and be blessed by him. And so that's what this is all about for us. It's uh, just the next 30 to 40 minutes, just kind of, and he didn't give me a clock, so that's bad for you. So just the next, um, however uh, God leads us to, um, to just see God as this big, beautiful king in Jesus, and then see our role in that, to bless him and to be blessed by him. And I think the way to do that for us is to see uh, four distinct characteristics of this king. Uh, First, we'll see that he is the righteous king who establishes justice. We'll see that he is the eternal king who rules forever. And then we'll see that he is the global king who rules the nations. And then finally, he's a compassionate king who rescues the oppressed. Will you join me in prayer? Father, thank you. Thank you for the privilege of being able to come before your throne of grace. Thank you that your son Jesus currently sits on the throne ruling that his authority cannot be usurped and that he cannot be impeached, that his reign is eternal. Pray, Lord, that you will help us to see how beautiful and how amazing that is. I pray that your word would not fall on bad soil, but it will. you will give us ears to hear and hearts to understand and that our hearts will be captivated by your beauty and by your love for us. And we will joyfully submit to you as our king. So, Father, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're going to, we're going to start in verse 1, uh, and we're going to look at first the righteous king who establishes justice. And when you go to verse 1, uh, you first thing you notice is that you see this, uh, sub, what we call a subscription. Uh, and the subscription says, of Solomon. And in most cases, this would be the author's way of identifying himself or kind of setting the stage for what's about to happen next or the setting in which that psalm is taking place. And so obviously, when we see of Solomon, uh, we kind of get the, the feeling that maybe this is authored by Solomon. And usually the way we kind of um, kind of guarantee that because we don't have much to guarantee it other than that subscription, the way we would guarantee it in most of the Psalms is we would begin to see that, okay, this author has given us a little bit of autobiography about himself in the Psalm, and then it kind of gets solidified uh, when it's quoted in the New Testament. But here, we neither have the author giving us an autobiography, uh, nor do we have uh, a a quote in the New Testament that would solidify him as the author. And to make things even more complicated, when you get to verse 20, it says, the prayers of David, the son of Jesse, are ended. So the question is, is is David writing about Solomon or is Solomon coming into power and praying for himself? So whatever, wherever you land, um, I think the most important thing for us to understand is that this psalm ultimately is about Jesus. And so although this psalm is not quoted, um, we have another prophecy in Zechariah that is quoted. And it sounds very familiar to the psalm we're going to read right now. In Zechariah 9, which is later quoted in Matthew 21, where Jesus gets a donkey and he uh, rides triumphantly into Jerusalem, we have Zechariah prophesying that event. 
and show that it's pointing to Jesus. And very clearly, this, this, this prophecy in, in Zechariah 9 also sounds very much like the psalm that we just read in Psalm 72. Listen to how it sounds in Zechariah 9, 9 through 10. It says this. Uh, I'm sorry. Yeah. Uh, 9, 9 through 10. It says in verse 9, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will cut off the chariot of Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem, and the battle bow shall be cut off, and he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from the the river to the ends of the earth. And then you see something again happen, uh, uh, very prophesied later on and all throughout Isaiah, where this is this king that uh, ultimately gets fulfilled in Jesus. And so it becomes very clear that regardless of whether uh, Solomon is uh, talking about him coming into reign and praying for himself or praying for another or David praying for Solomon, ultimately what we're about to see next is that this king could only be one person, and that is Jesus Christ. And so when we get to verse 2, he begins with a very, uh, uh, or, or uh, beginning, beginning of the psalm, he begins with a very um, specific prayer. And he says, give the king your justice, O God, and your righteousness, to the royal son. So what he's asking for is that the king's actions be fair and right. And fair in the sense that what goes for the rich also goes for the poor. Everyone in the nation is treated equally and that that treatment or action measure according to an agreed upon standard. Early on, it was later determined that if if man was left to himself to determine what was right and wrong, things would go incredibly bad. And so even in the beginning of the garden uh, where man and woman were created and they 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 walked in the cool of day with God, they were uh, in communion with God. They were dependent on God. And then all of a sudden they decided that they were going to choose for themselves what was right and what was wrong. And then immediately we see the effects of that. People are dying. There's adultery. There's war. There's famine. There's slavery. And so ultimately when you see man is left to their own devices to choose what is right and wrong, things go incredibly bad. And we don't have to look very far to see that. You can just go out into the street or you can turn on to the news and you can discover that, man, when we are left to ourselves, we do crazy things. You don't even have to look at other people. You can just look in the mirror. You can just kind of do a snapshot of your life. And you can kind of reveal, it reveals very clearly that, man, when, when I uh, am the standard for what is good and what is right and what is wrong, things go uh, really wrong and people uh, get hurt very quickly. Um, at the same time, though, even in the Old Testament, you had uh, some kings who got close Yet David, who was uh, considered a, a man after God's own heart, and yet uh, um, he still, when he was left to himself, uh, things went really bad. And so even in, so even in trying to cover up his adultery with murder, um, you see things once again go really bad when he is left with, to, him, to his own devices. And, and Paul, our, our, our faith's most prominent church planter, who says... When it comes to the law, he was blameless, and yet he counts his own righteousness as manure and comes to the understanding that the righteousness that God demands is only uh, found in God himself. And so what we learn very clearly uh, from the beginning of this psalm is that Solomon clearly believes that God is the architect and owner of righteousness. For the psalmist, there is no true justice or righteousness apart from the living God. And therefore, this is a petition to to God that he would give his own judgments to the king. The king's judgments would be God's judgments. And that king would make the kinds of decisions that God would make, that he would enforce the kind of judgments that God would enforce. It's a petition for God to author the king's judgments so that they are righteous and just and so that they bring peace and wholeness and prosperity. 
And so what we see in verse 2 is we begin to see implications of that just and righteous rule. He says, may he judge your people with righteousness and your people with your poor with justice. And among any um, nation, whether you go to Maryland or D.C. or whether you drive down the road here, you'll find uh, poor and you'll find rich. Uh, you'll find people who are powerful and you'll find those who are weak. You'll find those with and you'll find those without. And so what God, what this, uh, what this seems to be is a solution to that reality, which is to commission a king uh, who, who, who has the authority to care for the weak through acting out God's righteousness and justice. And in other words, a king who would hold in high regard the same things that God would, who would celebrate the same things that God would, who would discipline the same things that God would. And so this is where every other king in the Bible and even up until now goes wrong. Because ultimately, they begin to want to lead and serve and rule based off of their own standard. And to be honest with you, it's not just kings who do it. We do it as parents. Think about it. So God has given us a people to steward and to care for. How often do we discipline our kids or do we discipline the people that we manage or do we discipline others based off of what, what is offensive to us? annoys us. Think about the last time you uh, uh, disciplined your kids for, or were, or even if you're, if you're still in your parents' house, think about the last time you, you were disciplined for just being ungrateful or for grumbling. And yet, uh, this, these are the things that God despises, and these are the things that God says eventually will lead to destruction, Right? And so for us, this is a king who will rule according to God's standard. This is a king that will rule according to God's mind and way of thinking. So all of us here today have been blessed with uh, someone to care for, someone to uh, steward, whether it's uh, a child or a coworker or uh, a family friend or even someone you've adopted or even yourself. And so the beautiful thing about grace is that not only did God love us in such a way that he uh, poured abundant grace and love on us and didn't give us what we deserved, which was uh, uh, hell and damnation forever, but he gave us his friendship, his love. He gave us his son, Jesus. We get the privilege and honor to be able to love and care and steward for people in the same exact way. Not according to what makes us feel good, not according to our own standard. And that's what Solomon is praying for. He's praying for a king that would have that would rule with the righteousness and justice of God. And so later on uh, in verses three through seven, we get to see what it looks like when that actually happens. And so verse three it says the mountains will will bear prosperity for the people. There, so that it's showing us that there's a moral connection between the way society organizes itself and its experience of prosperity. And then verse four, he says, uh, he defends the cause of the poor. In other words, he uses his authority not only to leverage it for other people in a power, but he exercises his authority on behalf of the poor. He takes decisive action to deliver the oppressed, even if it means uh, executing proper judgment over those who prey on the weak. Uh, He recognizes that it's not enough to rescue and empower the oppressed, but also to do what is necessary to stop the offender by uh, building systems and structures that defend the poor and the weak and to keep it from happening again. Verse 5, people will reverence you. Meaning, when a king acts as God would, it brings glory to God. Even the oppressors feel God, fear God, and it is everlasting from generation uh, to generation. Verse 6, uh, may, may it be like rain that falls on mown grass, like uh, showers that water the earth. So he's describing a king as, as a shower, as water. And so I think it's very clear for us that what life looks like when a drought hits. So I've never experienced a drought, but I can only imagine. I I believe that's something that you guys experience often. And so when a drought hits, what happens when there's no water? You can speak to me. It's okay. 
<laughs> right? What happens when there's no water? Things die. Yeah, things die. And so ultimately, uh, he's saying this king brings water. This king brings life. And so that's the result of a king that rules with the mind of God is not only are the poor cared for, not only are the pressed free, but it brings life uh, to, to the land and it showers the earth. Another translation says it's like heavy rains overflowing the earth. And that's what exactly this king is like. It's like overflowing with life. Verse 7, the righteous flourish and peace abound. And so God's answer prayer will mean, God answering this particular prayer will mean uh, that the faithful will flourish and there will be peace in the land. And he's not just talking about this uh, silly, uh, uh, weird peace um, where um, everything is going right. He's talking about this holistic peace. This piece that actually Ecclesiastes calls confounding. I just don't understand it because everything is going wrong. And yet I feel totally at peace because I have a king who rules with the mind of God. That's a beautiful feeling. And so for any of us who are in turmoil and filled with anxiety and stress and perplexed about how we're going to get through the next day, and that is um, in comparison to eternity. Um, for us, if you are in Christ, we get to take joy in our king who rules. Because under his rule and reign, everything will be okay. And so as a result of that, we get to have peace. You get to rest in him. And so in uh, 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 Paul, he puts it this way, and this, this is why I love it, because he says that ultimately uh, this type of peace is uh, a type of peace that is satisfaction rooted in righteousness, right? And so in Philippians 3, 4 through 11, Paul says this, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day, of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, Benjamin, Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, Pharisee, as to zeal, persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I count as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him, the power of his resurrection, and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Jesus is the only righteous king whose behavior is perfect and flawless and who we can find our peace. Jesus is the one true king. You can say amen. You can say a little bit louder. Go ahead. Thank you. Yeah. You got started for everybody else. Yep. And so we have Jesus, this ideal, perfect, righteous king who is just, but he is also the eternal king who rules forever. Uh, look at verse 5. He says this, May they fear you while the sun endures, and as long as the moon, throughout all generations. So forever is a really long time. It's so long that it doesn't have a number. And this king doesn't reign for a term or for a season, or even for a lifetime. His reign is eternal. And so for the person that wrestles with uh, the Jesus of the Bible, this is incredibly critical. And at, at the very least, you have to ask yourself, does this Jesus really exist? Because the implications are too critical to ignore. And here's the reason why. So in every, uh, every kingdom, in every administration, you find three things, right? You find pattern, which is considered the value, the things that, or priorities, the things that uh, that administration values uh, holds high. Or you find power, 
uh, the, the ability to implement those values, and then you find a product, which is the outcome of those enforced values. So once again, in any kingdom, all right, we're talking about why you must consider if this Jesus is real. So in any kingdom, in any administration, you find those three things. Uh, you can just look around and, and uh, at any past president and you'll figure out what they hold most important, what the campaign they ran on. You'll see values, which is uh, uh, you'll see power, which is how they implement those values. And you find the product, the outcome of that. Here's the thing. In the New Testament, Jesus narrows it down to only two kingdoms. He says, uh, and what is important for us to understand is that in those two kingdoms, you are a citizen of one. Everybody who exists is a citizen of one or the other. You're either a citizen of uh, the kingdom of darkness or you're a citizen of uh, the son of God. And Paul talks about later that we have been rescued from this kingdom of darkness into the marvelous light of the kingdom of the son of God. And so you're either uh, one or two of those. And in the kingdom of darkness, value is placed, as Luke 6 shows us, it's placed on comfort. It's placed on success and it's placed on personal recognition and the power and how those values are enforced is what Tim Keller calls the power of now. It means that you live your best life now. It means that there's no tomorrow. So everything is on the moment. Tomorrow doesn't exist. Eternity doesn't exist. It's all about the right now. And so if that's if that's true, success and power and recognition and going for all of those things, it makes sense. Um, and, but the problem is the outcome. The problem is the product. And so if it's the power of now that reinforces and allows you to be successful and uh, allows you to achieve all those values, the outcome is temporary. Meaning it, it just doesn't last. Tempor temporary, temporary power, uh, you're strong now, but someone will come along who is stronger. Temporary comfort, uh, your field now will be empty later. Temporary success or a temporary recognition. Um, 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 if you love sports, uh, um, these uh, records are meant to be broken. Our success, our, our track record, our resume, all of those things are just temporary if it's empowered and enforced by the, the power of right now. But in, in God's kingdom, in the kingdom of the Son of God, the values are changed, right? Uh, where once power was uh, valued, it's now weakness. Where comfort was esteemed, it's now sacrifice. In the place of success, we embrace grief. Instead of recognition, we have humility. And now, uh, when you uh, these things are enforced, they are enforced by the steadfast love of an eternal king. And so the outcome is eternal satisfaction in Jesus. And so if if eternity is real, if Jesus is real, what happens to the temporary outcomes of this world? Not only is it temporary here where you get temporary satisfaction, but it now if eternity is real, if Jesus is real, it's now uh, cosmic emptiness. It's now cosmic uh, uh, suffering. It's now cosmic grief. And so therefore you must wrestle with the reality of does this eternal king who reigns from from uh, eternity to eternity who, whose reign has no end, you must wrestle with the reality of does he exist? Because if you don't, it will have cosmic implications. And even more clear, it gets enforced in Luke 1, where an angel appears to Mary and announces to Mary that this king is real and you're carrying him and his reign is eternal. Look at what this angel says in uh, Luke 1. He's, he says, do not be afraid, Mary. For you have found favor with God, and behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great. He will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. 
And so the reality that we have to face and you have to ask yourself, does this Jesus ex- exist because of all of the implications that come with that? And because for us who are in Christ, who do believe, this is where our hope is placed. For those of us who do believe in eternity, for those of us who are submitting to this eternal king, this is where our, we find our hope. This is where we find our peace. And so when you go from day to day through life's twists and turns, we get to recognize the reality that uh, uh, heaven is real. Eternity is real. This is temporary. And this is preparing us for the glory of God to be in his presence, to enjoy him forever and spend eternity with our King Jesus. You got to say amen to that. Because that's where hope is found. And so we have uh, uh, Jesus, this righteous king who establishes justice. Uh, we have Jesus, this e- eternal king who reigns forever. And then we have this universal king who rules the nations. So go with me in verse 8. Um, it says this. Um, May he have dominion from sea to sea, from the river to the ends of the earth. And so I, I think what the psalmist is getting at here is that um, he's, he's more. He's more. Think about any other leader you could ever imagine. He's more. He's greater than. He, his, his, his reign does not uh, uh, stop in a district. His reign does not stop in a region. His reign does not stop in a country or a continent. His reign is universal from sea to sea, from river to river to the ends of the earth. And we've seen over time, I love history. And, we, and when, I, when I look at history, I'm always fascinated about how, uh, how one king builds off of the conquest of another. And we've seen uh, men, just individual, plain old men do amazing things as ruler and as kings. So even in Persian Empire, they were able to expand their rule from Greece to India. And then Alexander came in and he was able to beat the Persians by a few hundred miles and he was able to expand it just a little bit more. And then Rome, Rome came in and was able to acquire uh, a lot more territory to the north. And uh, they figured out for a brief season how to govern the whole thing and keep it in check. But these kings reach was short in comparison to this king. There are no borders. There are no boundaries. Every city, state, and country, this king can walk in without permission. He doesn't have to check in with anyone. He doesn't need a passport. He doesn't need permission because it is all his. And he rules it all from sea to sea. And that's what makes this king extraordinary. That's why this king is not Solomon. That's why this king is not David. That's why this king is not any president, past, present, or future. This is the king of the Son of God. This is Jesus. It can only be him. Funny story. When I grew up in uh, D.C., and D.C. is a very unique place because uh, uh, what runs through D.C. is a street called Southern Avenue. And on the other side is Southeast D.C. And on the other, literally across the street is Oxon Hill, Maryland, where we're planting. Right. And so you could literally cross the street. I was I grew up in South D.C. and raised by a single mom. And so she thought that the, that to keep us safe, we would move to Maryland. And so we just literally crossed the street. We literally found out that that was not true at all. One of the funniest things and one of the most tragic things I've ever seen in my life my, uh, was the, the my mom was a, uh, was a D.C. cop. And so I, I knew a lot about law. Uh, I knew a lot about uh, how things work. And one of the funniest things I ever saw was a guy being chased by a police officer. And, and <laughs> this fool decided that he was going to run across the street and just stop. Because in somewhere in this man's mind, he had figured out that this police officer could not cross the street. <laughs> and he just stopped. I mean, and he was gone. 
he was, this cop was not catching him. It was not happening. And this fool stops. And the whole neighborhood is like, run, 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 you idiot. Even his own mom is like, you stupid idiot, keep running. And it's, it's so confounding to the cop that the cop stops on the other side of the street and just looks at him like confused. And he literally just walks across the street and he puts cuffs on him paces down till other police show up. And so what I'm getting at here and using a very funny and weird story to get at is there are no boundaries for King Jesus. Take a moment and, and just like think on that. We serve a king who rules with no boundaries. That is so sweet. That gives me so much peace in a world filled with so much turmoil. In a world where it always feels like we're on the brink of war. I get to look at that and I get to rest in the reality that my King Jesus rules it all. Verse 9. His enemies will bow down to him. They call them uh, desert tribes, and these are uh, possible uh, uh, allusions to demonic presence. And these, these, this, these, this demonic presence, they, it says he licked the dust. And so it's saying that they even, even the demons bow down to him. And so God's global rule, God's universal rule, is not just uh, uh, geographic. It's also spiritual. So God rules it all. He rules this world and the world to come. He rules the spiritual world and the physical world. It's all his. And so when you listen to psychologists and sociologists and all this mumble jumble about, yeah, uh, God, uh, you have to separate uh, the spiritual from the emotional and the mental and the psychological. No, he rules it all. He rules everything and it all belongs to him. And so the the the. The idea of uh, a God who rules both the spiritual and the physical means that we get to find our rest in peace in him. In verse 10, uh, this is a genuine sign of submission where you see uh, foreign kings come as far as Spain and Arabia to honor this king of nations. Verse 11, once again, they bow down and serve him. Now, if you're like me, not only does this bring you great joy, but it also bothers me a little bit, primarily because I have a problem with authority. We've been set up, right? We have not been set up well. We've been set up to, to basically be kings of our own kingdom. That's what the world has done for us. It has trained us to be little mini kings who rule our own kingdom. And as long as you don't break my laws, then you're welcome in my land. And if you break my laws, you now be are forced out and kicked out. And sometimes and we are at war with one another. And that's why this is so difficult for me, because essentially what this is asking us to do is to, to is to lay down our throne to a greater, more beautiful king who rules it all and submit to his authority to submit to a king who is all powerful, who rules it all to recognize I see ourselves clearly and to understand that we are not the king. We are servants and steward of the king. And when I am ruling on my behalf, things go extremely bad and it's, it has eternal implications. But when I submit to the eternal king, there is the poor are taken care of, uh, the, the oppressed are freed, uh, that, that I get to have peace in him and rest in the reality that I get to spend eternity with him forever. So the, the, the third thing, so we have this, 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 this king who is righteous and just in Jesus Christ. We have Jesus, this eternal king, and then Jesus, this universal global king. And then also we have, uh, in verses 12 through 14, a compassionate king who rescues the oppressed. I want us to recognize one thing, and that's incredibly important, is that God by nature is a rescuer. And therefore, a king, any king of his must be the garden, uh, God rescues Adam and Eve. 
uh, from themselves and removes them from the garden to prevent them from eating themselves to death and killing themselves. He rescues kings, prostitutes. He rescues the blind. He rescues the children of Roman soldiers. God is a compassionate God who protects the oppressed. And Solomon believes the king must be the same. So verse 12, for he delivers the needy when he calls, the poor and him who has no helper. Here the object of the king's deliverance is the poor and the needy, especially those crying out for help. And so this is very important. These cries are audible cries that those with authority have no excuse for not helping. These aren't cries that no one can say they didn't know. These are audible cries, and this king will act the same way God would. God listens, and he acts. God is our great helper who hears our cries, and the king should do the same. In other words, the king does not ignore the cries, nor does he simply pray and leave it to God. He will act as God would and has. Verse 13 explains what this means. He has pity. He, or he has pitied the weak and the needy and saves the lives of the needy. And so, once again, these are audible cries. And this isn't, this isn't just a, a moment for us to say, okay, yeah, that's the king. Yeah, that's Jesus. That's, that's what happened. But this is a moment for us as well, because I think this applies to us as well in, 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 a, in, a, in a lot of different ways. And so this is an opportunity for us to look around within the the circle in which God has given us to steward and care for and put our ear to people's hearts and be attentive to the cries, attentive to the cries of the poor and the needy, attentive to the cries of the lonely and the weak, attentive to the cries of the oppressed, and just listen. One of my favorite things about the Good Samaritan is when um, the Good Samaritan drops uh, the, the man who's been beat up at the end and says, can you take care of him? And I will give you whatever you need to do so. And I love that story because that's a great opportunity to say, what is at my doorstep? What has God put in place around me to be able to hear and listen and to respond to the cries of those who are oppressed? Because there are a lot of people crying around you that if you don't listen, no one else will. It doesn't mean that you have all the answers. It doesn't mean that you have all the resources. But it doesn't mean we don't do anything. And the reason why we can is not because we're these amazing, awesome people that do good things. It's because we have this amazing, awesome king who's done the most most amazing uh, expression of justice in Jesus Christ, who suffered and died for us so that we may have life. And now we get to respond to that by uh, serving and loving and caring for those who are crying out the same way we were in Christ. And that's a beautiful thing for us that we cannot ignore. And so he says in verse 13, once again, he says, this king has pity, uh, pities the weak and needy and saves the lives of the needy. And there's a, there's a great example of this, um, and that's in Jonah. Most of us are familiar with the story of Jonah, right? Jonah is this prophet. For some reason, I always picture Jonah as a small guy. Um, I don't know why, maybe because of the whole big fish thing, but uh, uh, Jonah is this guy who is a prophet of God, and he's been called to go uh, to Nineveh and preach the gospel to these wicked people. And, I, and Jonah doesn't want to, and so he runs the other way. Uh, we know this story, the boat, uh, the storm, the fish, he gets eaten, he repents, this fish casts him out. He goes back to Nineveh, he preaches the gospel, and then he's like, I knew it would happen. These people have repented. These people who deserve the wrath of God are now going to receive his justice and his grace and his mercy. And so what does Jonah do? Does he celebrate with his new brothers in Christ? No, he sulks. He goes into depression and he just wants to die. And that brings us to Jonah 4. And then Jonah 4, 6 through 10, while Jonah is dying, uh, this merciless prophet, God shows mercy to him. Listen to how this sounds in, in Jonah 4, 6 through 10. He says, but when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. 
And he asked that he might die and said, it is better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, do you do well to be angry for the plant? He said, yes. <laughs> That's a, like imagining God asking this sarcastic question. And then Jonah saying, asking, responding in sarcasm. Yes, I do well to be angry enough to die. And the Lord said, you pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. Should not I pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left and also much cattle? So you see this clear example of this compassionate God. Should I not pity them? These people are blind. Ephesians say they are, are in darkness. They're lost. They don't know their right hand from their left. And yet you pity this plant. Yet you care more about your car. Let you care more about your house or your clothes or your shoes or your bank account. And yet there are people who live in your neighborhood who you could care less about. And he looks at Jonah and says, how can that be when I've shown you so much mercy and I've shown you so much kindness and I've poured my love on you through my son, Jesus Christ? How could you not have pity for people who don't know their right from their left? So for us as a church, as a body, people who have been blessed by this big, beautiful, amazing king. We get the joy of revealing light to them. We get the joy of listening to their cries. We get the joy of sharing Christ. We get the joy of helping people free them from their oppression in our relationship, through our relationship with Jesus Christ. Do not ignore the cries. This is how we as a church show off the glory of God. This is why we plant churches so that we can gather together and united under this king and as stewards go and display the love of this king to one another and to our neighbor. This is why we plant churches. This is why we gather together every day to show off heaven on earth, both for our love for one another and our love for God's creatures and human beings who bear the image of Christ or bear the image of God. So here we are, verse 14, from the oppression, violence, he redeems their life, precious is their blood in his sight. The psalm finds its fulfillment in Jesus and teaches what it means to live under his reign. Luke 4 declares Jesus, in Luke 4, Jesus declares this, uh, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim the good news to the poor. He has set me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Jesus is the king who rescues the oppressed. He's done it over and over through his life and ministry. He rescued the poor woman's son. He rescued uh, Nicodemus and brought him back to life. And then ultimately in his own, uh, own life and death and resurrection, he rescued us from sin and from death. He is righteous and just. He reigns and endures forever over all nations. He's a compassionate and rescue. He's compassionate and rescues the oppressed. And then finally in verse 15 through 19, the joy of having a king like that, what can you do? So we, like I said, the Psalms reveal who God is. It reveals who, I, who we are, and our only response can be to worship him. And that's why I love Psalm, uh, uh, this Psalm 15, verses 15 through 19. Long may he live. May gold of Sheba be given to him. May prayer be made for him continually and blessings invoked for him all the day. 
May there be abundance of grain in the land, on tops of the mountains. May it wave. May its uh, fruit be like Lebanon. May people uh, blossom in the cities like the grass of the field. May his name endure forever. His fame continue as long as the sun. May people be blessed in him. All the nations call him blessed. And what's interesting about this is the, is the, uh, is the, is the figures of his blessing, is the objects of his blessing. Verse 16, it says, the tops of the mountains are filled with abundance of grain. And so I saw your Saddleback Mountains. I saw them with my own eyes. They're beautiful. They're amazing. I've been taking pictures of them all day and sending them to my wife. She doesn't appreciate that because she wishes she was in California. But I've seen them. They're big and they're beautiful and they're amazing. And when the light hits it at the right time, man, it's glorious. But I also know very clearly there are no grains at the top of those mountains. Like, people aren't going up into those mountains to collect the crops and the harvest of the field. There's not much life up there at all. If someone came to you right now and said, yeah, I'm going uh, to the mountains to collect grain and start my cornbread business, and you would look at them like they lost their mind. Either that or you would ask what they were smoking so you could have it too. But under this kingdom, under this king's reign, it says that the mountains are filled with more than enough of crops and grain. It says it's waving. It's You could see it from clear as day. This king, as a result um, of his just and righteous reign, um, we are blessed. And as a result of that, we get to bless him. We get to serve and love him. And under this king's righteous name, uh, righteous reign, we are blessed with mountains that have a harvest season that people are blessed by for eternity. And then this psalm ends the second book of the Psalms, and it ends with this beautiful doxology. One writer described it as as a, a worldwide doxology. It's a prayer for an enduring, blessed king, of a reign of the king, the eternal, universal praise of his glory. Listen to how it sounds. It says, says this, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who alone does wondrous things. Blessed be his glorious name forever. May the whole world be filled with his glory. Amen and amen. I don't know if you remember this, but in the gospel, Jesus is being interrogated right before he uh, is crucified. And he says this statement. He says, behold, you shall see the son of man coming on a cloud of glory. One day we will see with our own eyes the coming of the glory of our king. We will see with our own eyes the reign, the everlasting, the universal, the righteous, the compassionate reign of our blessed uh, King Jesus. And the believer delights in every thought of that happening is where we put our hope, is where we put our trust. Thank you for listening to the King's Cross Church podcast. We'd like to encourage listeners to be part of a local church gathering. If you're ever in the Orange County, California area, we'd love it if you'd come by and visit on a Sunday morning. For meeting times and locations or any other information about us, please visit kx.church. There's no .com in that, just kx.church. Thanks again for listening.